Since 2017, the Italian Wine Podcast has exploded, recently hitting 6 million listens. Support us by buying a copy of Italian Wine Unplugged 2.0 or making a small donation. In return, we'll give you the chance to nominate a guest and even win lunch with Stevie Kim and Professor Attilio Scienza. Find out more at italianwinepodcast.com. Chin chin. Welcome to The Next Generation with me, your host, Victoria Cece. This is your podcast to learn about all the cool things Italians 30 and under are up to in the food and wine scene. And yes, that includes all the best things to eat. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Next Generation. Today, we have a lovely guest on straight from Boston. I know that doesn't sound very Italian, but there are many Italians and Italian-Americans there. Today, we are speaking with Thomas Ranucci, also known as Mazo or Tommy, whatever you like to call him. Ciao, Thomas. Ciao. Come stai? How's it, how's it going? It's going well. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Beautiful Friday, October 13th day in Boston. Um, but yeah, excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I know. Thanks for bringing it up. It is Friday the 13th. This is an extra spooky episode. Very spooky. I know. We're <laughs> going to be talking about all the things that lie below Rome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. A little spoiler for whoever's listening today. So on that note, um, we have much to talk about today, much to learn about from Thomas from Mazo. I think I like Mazo better now that I'm saying your name more. I'm going to call you Mazo. Yeah, that's it's, cool. It sticks. Like my cousin, he gave me the nickname of it a few years back and I was like, that's that's sticky. I like it a lot. So yeah, let's go with that. I know a sticky nickname. I, I get it because I, in high school, uh, was, you probably read my last name and you're like in English, it's Cece, but in Italian it's Shadja. And so like in, in, in high school, all, all the kids called me Cece, like on my tennis, like team and everything. Yeah. And then like junior year, one kid figured out like how to pronounce it in Italian because I wasn't going to be annoying about it. And then it was like, it stuck. Like everyone called me Jecha. Like they couldn't like let it go. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> That's a great nickname too. And you didn't have to modify it. I at know. All. <laughs> it's good to have these kinds of nicknames. Today, of course, we can talk about, we're going to talk about a lot of things about Boston, about your Italian family. But first, we want to talk about you, Mazo. Who are you? How old are you? What do you do? Yeah, for sure. So, Yep, I'm Maso. Um, like I said, got that nickname. Kind of has developed into a, a cooking alias for me. So Tomaso shortened Maso. Um, yeah, so I'm 26 years old. I am born and raised in Boston. Um, so kind of a typical product of Boston where I got my dad, who's all Italian. My mom's all Irish. Um, so that's kind of my background there. Uh, born and raised ever since, you know, my nono and Anna came over on the boat from Italy. Um, so yeah, I've been based here, been doing a lot of traveling, but, um, you know, Boston's always been home base. I write for Eater Boston, which, you know, is, is a subset of Eater magazine. And, um, yeah, it's, it's great. I get to be involved with, you know, the Boston cooking scene, the restaurant scene, get to hear from, you know, a lot of the eaters out there on, you know, what the trends are and what's going on. And it's a great way to just kind of stay involved with something I'm passionate about. Awesome. And so how long have you been writing for Eater? Good question. So I actually started right around when COVID started. So 
I want to say like late 2019, they they posted out, you know, a, an ad really just saying we're looking for freelance writers, people who want to get involved more with, you know, food writing. And um, I basically just sent them a lot of different works and blogs that I'd done in the past. And they're like, this is great. You can, um, you know, here's some assignments you can get started on. So I, I've been writing with them, you know, off and on since then. So, you know, almost almost four years now. And is there like a favorite thing you've written about or like a the funniest thing you've written about? Ooh, so one of the first pieces I did actually was was about a very small kind of unknown Italian enclave in Massachusetts. So people from, you know, Massachusetts, Boston area, the first place they always think of for Italian is the North End. And yeah, North End's great. It has unbelievable Italian food a great rich history of Italian America. Um, But there's a little enclave just outside the city on the Newton Watertown border. So it's about 15 minutes outside the city and it's called Nonantum. Um, And, you know, locals call it the lake. So the lake is a very, you know, Italian-esque enclave that has a lot of great Italian food and history, but it's very, it's not very known to be, you know, to get Italian food there or, or speak Italian with some of the locals and whatnot. Um, so that was probably, I don't know if it was funny, but um, it was just like a really fun project that I got to work on, got to, you know, see a lot of the places there, how it's kind of developed over the years and whatnot. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you're in the Boston area or not and, and looking for something different, definitely check out Nonantum. That's super cool. And also it's very on brand with this Friday the 13th, like the lake. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. There we go. Hopefully, no slash. It's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna keep referencing that. Or I don't know. I know that everyone starts that argument um, in something that we're both Italian American that you hear all the sauce or gravy thing, which is just foreign to Italians. Yeah, over here. But like that is is there? I don't even know in Boston. Do you call it sauce or gravy? My understanding is that gravy is a big New York, New Jersey thing. Up here, it's. I'd say 99% of people are, are sauce people, myself included. Uh, <laughs> what about you? What do you think? On so that? my background's kind of weird because it was both. Like I heard gravy a lot, like from my aunts in Jersey, like, you know, gravy, like if the accent is like, you know, seared in my brain. <laughs> but um, I also would go to Italy a lot in the summer. So like, and my mom would call it sauce and my mom's not American. I mean, not Italian, sorry. Um, so yeah, yeah, I heard both growing up. So like, I never really felt like I had to stand by one, but I think you're right. I think the gravy thing is very much the, it's like a mix between New York and Jersey. Um, but I say sauce though. Like if you were to catch me on a random note, I would say sauce cause gravy, my mom being American, I think yeah. like Thanksgiving gravy. You think like turkey. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's, that's exactly how I am. Like I hear gravy, I think brown the brown stuff that you pour over mashed potatoes. Exactly. And then there's also white gravy, which is like, I never really go for because it grosses me out, but it's like a whole thing. Like after I lived in kind of the, like I did live in the South for a minute and like the food, I mean, obviously it's very different there, but I was like, ah, like if you have biscuits and gravy, sometimes it's like the, like the white sausage gravy. Oh, okay. I honestly don't think I've had that before, but I'd, I'd give it a go. Yeah. Yeah. It is really good. Yeah. I won't lie. Yeah, it's, it's all related. I know. 
uh, <laughs> Italian wine podcast and I'm talking about biscuits and gravy, but that's food. Yeah. It's all about rehydrating bread. That's like the core of Italian yeah. cuisine is like literally reviving bread half the time. So that's how I'm going to correlate it right now. <laughs> Anyways, super cool. So speaking of Italian food and you, um, let's talk a bit about your relationship with Italian food and your Italian family. Can you tell us a little bit about them and why you're so close to your roots? Yeah, absolutely. So my family is, we're about, so I'm third generation. So I think I'm third generation. Um, my no-no, we call him no-no, but he's actually my great-grandfather. He came over in the early 1900s with his brother. They were 13 and 17 respectively. Um, and they had, you know, a lot of siblings that stayed in Italy, kind of the, that story you hear all the time, they left the Mezzogiorno, you know, just south of Rome to find better life, to find better opportunity in America. So he came over when he was 13, um, worked at the hood rubber shoe factory, um, and really just kind of, you know, made his mark in America coming here. Um, Growing up, that was something that, you know, we were always told by my dad. And, you know, fortunately, he lived till he was 104. So I actually have a lot of memories with him and um, just being in his house and, and whatnot. So very fortunate for that matter. But yeah, I mean, just growing up with, with that as kind of my starting ground as who my family is, what the story is, that's very, that's kept me very in touch with my roots. And more importantly, wanting to connect with them as much as possible. So while the generational gap was there, definitely have influences, you know, on wanting to connect with it as much as possible. And, and of course, that comes back to the cuisine and all the tra traditions that were passed on, um, you know, down my family line. So in, in terms of cuisine, my Nana, she was from Palestrina, uh, just, you know, 30 minutes outside of Rome. And she had this reputation in this little enclave within an enclave in Boston for for the Italian neighborhood that they were in. Um, it was called Bug Village, and it was in Brighton, Massachusetts, so uh, a neighborhood of Boston. And she had this reputation of being the best cook within this Italian community. So, I mean, Victoria, as you know, having that reputation is... It's, it's not something that Italians will, will give to other Italians. So kind of knowing that and how she had a rep even among the Italians to be like the best cook there, um, we had a lot to live up to. So, you know, she had her meatball recipe, you know, all these different recipes, ricotta pie um, that, you know, we try to, I try to replicate them. She was somebody that never gave recipes out. So that's kind of been a very fun experience on my end because all that we really have now is my dad, my aunt, all their stories on what it tasted like, what different ingredients that she used that, you know, you wouldn't see at your typical Italian American joint or even Italian restaurant um, in Boston or Italy, wherever you are. Um, so that's kind of a long winded answer of, of kind of how, why I'm so in love with like my family's cuisine and background and whatnot. Um, but yeah. So I want to go back. I didn't want to interrupt you because that's really beautiful. And I'm really thankful for you sharing it. Yeah. But what is a ricotta pot? So ricotta pie. Oh, you said pie. I thought you said a ricotta pot. And I was like, oh no. I was like, what? <laughs> I was really 
curious. Ricotta pie. I was like, is this something I like? Because I was like, I've never heard of that. And he said ricotta pie. I was like, oh. <laughs> it, a ricotta pot sounds fantastic. <laughs> I know, right? I mean, that can take on a lot of different meanings yeah. in this climate, in this cannabis climate. <laughs> But um, that clears up my question. <laughs> but uh, I think that that aspect of storytelling and carrying down those traditions, because I totally understand there's just things that, you know, people in your family make it. And it's not just the it's not the recipe. It's the method. And like, as as everyone says, cheesily, it's like the love that they put into it. Yeah. And I think it's it's so nostalgic for that way because even though it's so special, it's so sad because you can't like, you you know, you'll never replicate it, but you can always like have that memory. Absolutely. But that's so special. I mean, except the ricotta pie, not pot. <laughs> was there like one specific dish that was your nonna's like signature or at least like for you? So I think it has to be her meatballs. And, you know, like we were saying, it did get lost in time, the exact recipe. But, you know, my mom has taken that on and she has an Irish background, but she knows just how fantastic they were and the reputation they had. So she's kind of developed her own meatball recipe. And I would say that that would be the signature dish. And, you know, as cliche Italian American as it is, you know, spaghetti meatballs, you know, it, it's all about the story. So yeah, while it is cliche, I, I would say that's our family signature dish right now. I love being creative and trying different things in the kitchen. So having something that I always go back to is honestly kind of tough for me. But just based on the nostalgia involved with it, it's definitely the meatballs. Um, you know, I've had meatballs all over Boston, Porpete, all over Italy. And I still think my moms are the best as biased as that is. But yeah, that, that would definitely be our signature dish in our family. I mean, trust me, it's the same thing over here. Like everybody's mom or nonna makes the best whatever it is of that area. And like, that's just going to be how it is. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think for like, I totally get you because my nonna made the best meatballs. And I'm not going to argue with you on here yeah. about it. I, you know, we can't transfer the the tastes and the aromas. Right. That is one thing that actually was just talking about it the other day that like it's I can make them really well. But like the way you know what I think it is and, and you probably feel similarly is that the pot of meatballs and with my nonna, it was, it was mostly meatballs, but then she had the salsicha and then a bit of brajol in there. It was like the unifying pot of the family. Like if you came into my grandmother's house, that pot was expected to be there on Sunday. And if it wasn't there, you're like, wait, like you're like, something's wrong. You know what I mean? And Something's off. yeah, exactly. Like, and, and as my nonna got older, like sometimes she didn't have it because she like, she was either tired or something. So then you would know, okay, like, or my uncle would try to step in and make them. So for me, it's like, I, I totally get it because it, it's, it sounds so cliche when everyone's like, oh yeah, the meatball thing. But like, at least in my family, like we, it wasn't like the spaghetti and meatball thing is obviously a stereotype that's just, you know, just grew over time. Whereas like, it was more about the pot of meatballs, you know? And I'm actually curious, like my, my nonna never made, like my grandmother never made spaghetti with the meatballs. It was the sauce with macaroni, and then we ate the meatballs separate. Or you can eat it with your pasta if you wanted. She didn't care. But what pasta did you guys eat your meatballs with? Yeah, so or like the that's sauce? that's a great point. And it's so true how the pot of meatballs transcends food or just pure nourishment. It has way more meaning. And, and like you said, like coming home and 
just seeing it on the stove and brings everyone together. There's just so much more emotion involved than the actual food itself. We did it the you know, the spaghetti and meatballs way. So we served them with the spaghetti. Recently, you know, I do like homemade pasta with it, which is awesome. When my Nana did it, she would do kind of like how you would do it in in Italy. So there'd be the pot, all the different meats inside simmering away, cooking into this just pure deliciousness. And then you would have those separately, but you could use like the sauce that had been cooking all day and serve that with macaroni or whatever first course was there. So yeah, that's another way it's kind of evolved. So we've even more Americanized it just doing the traditional like serve it over spaghetti and there you go. Um, We also have, you know, some nieces and nephews now. So from a pure East point of view, just serving it all together at once is just like easy with them. The kids can eat, get it out of the way. Like I know it's, it, it's funny you bring up like the younger nieces and nephews and whatnot, because like, even like if they're younger cousins, they're almost, it's not like they're in a different generation, but they're getting a different experience. Cause maybe they don't get to engage as much with the nonna, but they still get to enjoy it. And like, they have their little preferences of what they like. Like I have one younger niece that doesn't like tomato sauce. So like my family will make her like pasta and bianco or something like like just you know butter and like parmigiano or something wine to wine business forum everything you need to get ahead in the world of wine supersize your business network share business ideas with the biggest voices in the industry join us in verona on november 13 to 14 2023 tickets available now at wine2wine.net And I think that's the most beautiful part about food. You know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because you are a food writer and food writing now requires social media engagement, as we know. Um, And like people, what I find uh, is people strive so much to put culture in like a box, you know, especially Italian food. Like they, they, people like really want to find opportunities to shame other people for what they do. And it, it was something that like, in the beginning, I used to like kind of like revel in some of the rules myself because I wasn't living in Italy and I was like, you know, you kind of miss certain things. So you're like, yeah, you do the cappuccino only in the morning, blah, blah, blah. But once you, you, you stop thinking like that, a lot of these things, like there's differences across Italy or even in Italian American communities, like between, like we were just talking about before with like Jersey and Boston, but it doesn't make anything less Italian or Italian American, right? Like, I wouldn't like sit here and like, be like, oh, well, sorry, your nonna's not like legit because you know, she lets you eat it with spaghetti or whatever. You know what I mean? Right, right. And so I guess, sorry, I am a, I'm good at ranting. But my point is here, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that of like navigating the Italian American and Italian food space as a, a food writer. Yeah, no, that's, that's something that I, I love that topic. Because like you said, authenticity is a multifaceted word because authentic to you is a, a completely different thing than what authentic to me would be or authentic to, you know, my nona or anybody else for that matter. And the way I like to think of it, especially in today's world with social media and everything being so, oh, you have to do X, Y, Z for it to be the authentic version. Carbonara comes to mind right away, but even beyond that, you know, like something that you know, goes back centuries. Um, I love thinking back to Rome because, you know, I've lived there. I've, I love the food there and, you know, some of the, some of the dishes that exist there, what is authentic then could be completely different to what's authentic now. So I think the biggest message that I try to deliver to people when this whole topic of authenticity and like tradition comes around 
is keeping an open mind and keeping open ears. So you really want to hear what makes something authentic. So yeah, like spaghetti and meatballs, what's what's authentic about that? Think beyond the recipe. What's the story behind it? What is it that makes this authentic to you? And there's like like we said, there's a lot of answers to that. So there really isn't a right or wrong. It's more of a hear what they have to say, hear what they're cooking, hear what they're eating, hear what they have been eating, and then listen to why that's authentic to them or why that is a recipe, why it stood the test of time, why it's still here. And of course, you know, with social media and people in the creativity and people, not only cooks, but the people eating the food, there's always going to be different renditions of these authentic recipes that come out. And of course, you're going to, you're going to hear the, you know, the social media warriors that are out there, you know, this isn't authentic, this isn't that. And, you know, while while it's good that they're holding true to a, a certain value that they're familiar with, it does kind of stunt the evolution of food and, you know, what food comes to over the years. Because, you know, carbonara wasn't a thing 200 years ago. This is something that's relatively new. And that's something that only really emerged because of this this change to authenticity, this this creativity that's involved with food. We're ranting, but we're, we are Italian, so we love to talk. <laughs> no, 100%. You more have the platform to rant because this is an interview to showcase you. I'm here to listen to all of it and, and everything you said, it's, it's, it's super important. And, and of course, bringing up carbonara because that's probably the most controversial dish of Italian cuisine at the at the moment. Um, and I, I'm very happy that you brought up the fact that of the newness of in, of a lot of Italian dishes, of, of a lot of Italian cuisines, because, you know, World War II did a number on Italy and, and then the economic miracle after, the way that affected it, it really defined a lot of the dishes um, or at least set, their evolution like carbonara. And so I think it's really important. It's exactly like you said, is to listen and not come in with um, already a judgment or, or, or as I say, a way to shame somebody because you have another opinion. It's, it's understand why to them this dish matters, why they chose the ingredients and have a conversation um, because food is constantly like it's, it's, it's its own culture. It's always evolving and adapting and, I think that's why people it's I think it's so ironic because people love Italian food so much because it's so diverse and there's so much to enjoy. Like, of course, you love pasta because it's good, but you love it because there's like a bajillion kinds of pasta, you know, like you can never get bored. But the reason there's a bajillion kinds of pasta is because of all this change that's happened in this one small area that's like what like Italy itself is like just a bit bigger I think than like Arizona yeah relatively it's it's a small spot with just concentrated with all this different stuff that we're talking about you know exactly and um I'm glad also that um and you mentioned before your family's from my family being from a similar area the area our families are from um, in the province of Frosinone is like such an interesting place because it's right south of Rome. It was under the kingdom of two Sicilies to an extent, like Palestrina, maybe, maybe not, but like where you're, um, you're saying your grandfather was from, uh, Valle Corsa? Or- yeah, so when he came over, it was still considered Campania. 
So it, it wasn't King of Two Sicilies. He's not that old, but um, no, no, I, I mean like just the area of the influence, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, just that area alone, like the Mezzogiorno, and it's so close to Rome. It's so close to Naples, but they've even just being between those two kind of metropolises, those two epicenters of different culture of having you know the Napolitano versus Romano cultures and whatnot. They've almost developed their own sense of community and um you know la chosharia the that area that they're in there very underrated not very well known but absolutely gorgeous not to kind of stray away but um yeah i mean even there you drive you know you drive 20 minutes to a different city and they call they call some the same food something else just because of the stories and how that food developed there. And, um, you know, there's always a story behind why something is called something. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was making nudie the other day and, you know, that's just means naked and it's, it just translates to the naked part of the ravioli without the pasta. So that in itself is a story of why something is called something. It's also fascinating. Yeah, there's so much. And like, you made me think of um, pasta fagioli because where my family is from, they call it lagane fasul. Okay. Because lagane is like the pasta they make there, which is like short, but like thick, almost like a like a wider tagliatelle, but not quite pappardelle. No, and you're absolutely right. And going back to the like the, the aspect of the storytelling, like from your perspective with this new generation of eaters and drinkers yeah what do you find that they're going towards what makes them interested in eating um italian food or drinking italian wine that is a great topic that i've dove into just kind of in my own thoughts and and in my own writing and whatnot but i think there's a trend towards this very ambiguous authentic word so you know we've seen in new york city for example uh, Roscioli is now there, a very famous Roman trattoria and salumeria, and that's now in New York City. Very accessible. People see that, say, wow, this is a top tier restaurant food spot in Rome. Now it's in the palm of my hands in New York. I can, you know, I can take the tea here and go get authentic Roman food, whatever that is. Um, or Da Michele. Uh, centuries old pizzeria that's also now in New York. So I think there's this trend where what people consider and what is not fabricated, but what is kind of pushed as being authentic is so much closer to consumers now. Um, even traveling, it, it's it's no longer a luxury to travel. I, I mean, it, it is still a luxury, but it's more accessible, I should say. So people have this broader environment at their fingertips to recognize what they feel is, you know, a traditional food from a certain place. And I see that not only in the in the consumers, but also restaurant owners and people that are putting out new dishes and trying to kind of stay on top of the food game. There's a lot of these mixes of authentic sticking to a cuisine's kind of staples and and whatnot. Something I think of is, you know, seasonality as well. So seasonality is something that is emerging more and more. You're not going to restaurants in the summer anymore and, and expecting to have something that you'd have in the winter or people are are becoming more open and comfortable with the idea that, you know, you can't have artichokes in Rome in 
late September or, or October. That's, that's something you have in the spring. And, you know, 10 years ago, somebody would say, well, that's ridiculous. I want artichokes. I want those now. It doesn't matter what month it is. Now it's, it's more so, ah, that makes sense. Let's try something else that is seasonal, that's fresh, that's readily available and at its peak deliciousness to consume now. You know, you and I know that that's been something that has been instilled in, in places like Italy and across Europe. But in America, that was never something that people recognized. And um, I think that's more of a trend that I'm seeing now. And, and yeah, it, it all goes back to kind of accessibility and things being more at your fingertips and chefs getting creative there and transitioning this consumer norm that you can get whatever you want, whenever you want. But at the end of the day, that's that's not how the the agricultural world works. You know, you have to eat seasonal. You have to eat what is there at that specific time, which I love. I think it's to kind of summarize that. I think we're going in a great direction in the food world. So yeah, I'm really excited about that. Well, I'm happy to hear that you're positive. I mean, not that I'm not, but like I'm very positive as well. But yeah. um, no, it's it's you bring up some really valid points about like how there's a lot more education on certain aspects of how you know growing your food works and what foods are available. And and I don't want to open up this box because we're about to wrap our interview. But the concept of seasonality in America and having a culture that is very much rooted in commercialism. And of course, it's not like Italy where there's these despite, you know, maybe dishes being young, there are, there is this, this, you know, centuries old understanding of, of seasonality and cuisine and um, availability. I'm happy that you're saying that you see that younger people are aware of this, um, especially because knowing that from a younger age is really important. And to be able to go in with a mindset of maybe not taking, you know, their, their culture with them when they travel to a place. And also looking for those those um, experiences where they can have them, like you brought up with Rosholi, which is really interesting because, um, uh, I mean, I've gone to Rosholi many times, like all the, you know, so the Maria Rimessa and it's, and I, I've yet to go to the one in New York. I almost did one night, um, but that's a, another funny story for another time. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll keep the cliffhanger on this podcast. Yeah. Maybe I'll share it another time. But uh, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you a super important question really like super important question. What do you drink? What don't I drink? No. Um, <laughs> okay, wine. Let's keep it to wine because despite us talking about food on this podcast, it is the Italian wine podcast, if you forgot. Yeah. So with the cooler months coming up, I am extremely excited to get back into some some deeper red. So specifically, love Nebbiolo. So my first time in Italy was in Piemonte. Kind of fell in love with that, that grape right away. The the Barbaresco, Barolo regions, um, everywhere up there. So yeah, right now my go-to is the Nebbiolo, really any wine around that region. Um, it's it's kind of hits home for me. Have you tried to pair Nebbiolo with the meatballs? Yes. My mom's name is Barbara. So Barbera is like, that's kind of became one of our favorite wines. So we, we have that a lot. My sisters love it. But yeah, that's that's a great pairing, I think. Barbera, yeah. It's such a reliable, yeah. just, it's not, a, I don't say table wine in literally vino da tavola. It's not a table wine, but I mean like to have on the table. It's just like, it goes so well with like so many dishes. It's one right. of my favorites as well. Yeah, it's delicious. Piemonte just overall, I mean, I think in, in the US, it's a very under, not underrated, but just 
unknown region to get wines. Like you get a lot of just Cabernets from out West, which is great drinking and whatnot. But, um, you know, you can find very, very great um, Northern Italian reds that are reasonably priced. And um, I, I love going for those. And what maybe I'm biased just because that's, you know, the first, first time I was in Italy and the first time I was drinking great Italian wine was just happened to be in Piemonte, but um, hey, yeah, it's, it's delicious drinking wine. Oh no, yeah, no, Piemonte is quite the wine region. Everyone has their favorites across Italy, so different, just like the food, but that's the beauty of it all. I mean, Italy has the most indigenous grape varietals in any other country, wow. which is insane. Mazo, before we wrap up, we are going to finish this interview how we always finish it with five things in well under five minutes, just to cover a few bases of what we discussed today. And then you are free to go and hopefully eat a delicious Friday lunch. Absolutely. Sounds great. All right. Perfect. So whenever you're ready. All right. I'm ready. So where are we? Where are you based? We are in Boston, Massachusetts. Fantastic. Can you tell us about the feature dish we talked about today? My Nana's meatballs, a very special part of my family, of where they immigrated to in Boston. One of the secret ingredients that she had in it through the grapevine, through the generations, was pine nuts and white raisins. Wow. So a little like Sicilian almost action, like Neapolitan Sicilian. Wow. See, we didn't learn that earlier. He saved the best for last. Exactly. Okay. And where's your family, your Italian family from? They're from central Italy. Some in Frosinone, about an hour south of Rome. Um, Palestrina, which is about 30 minutes outside. And then also on the East Coast in Chieti Abruzzo. Cool. And back to the meatballs, what is your go-to wine pairing? Ooh, let's stick with the Nebbiolo, Northern Robust Red. Perfect. And finally, can you share with us one trend you see in the Italian or Italian-American food world? This might cause some debate, but trend I'm seeing in Italy's culinary future is the kind of embrace of American recipes and kind of putting an Italian spin on that. And again, that could be a whole other podcast, but. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that. And you're saving good things for last and I can't open my mouth because we have to wrap. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess we'll have to talk about that after, but yeah. thank you so much, Mazo. I really appreciate you coming on the pod today. Um, and sharing all your story, what you do. And I wish you the best of luck with all the things. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Victoria. Grazie mille. This was, this was so much fun. I'm happy you had fun. I did too. Alla prossima. Ciao. Alla prossima. Ciao. As always, a big grazie for hanging out with me today. Remember, you can catch me on the Italian Wine Podcast every Sunday and anywhere you can get your pots.